Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers. It will also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. As ever, I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, feeling bad for Larry Fessenden. I thought you were going to say, and I'm Andy Stewart, possibly dead at the bottom of a stairwell. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, we did decide this week, uh, no cancellations, no nothing, no excuses, we just decided that we were going to chill out a little bit and have an Andy vs. Mitch episode. Yeah, it was a a necessary thing, I think, for for our mental health. (laughs) I think that's probably true. I tell you, though, we are in the end stages of uh, lining something up for next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, this has been, uh, this is something that's been a little bit in the works, so it'll be interesting to see uh, kind of how well it comes off. And it was my turn to pick a film again, and uh, I went for one that uh, you haven't seen, and I think possibly previously hadn't heard of. You're absolutely right. I had never heard of this. I had never, well, clearly never seen it if I hadn't heard of it. Um, But uh, yeah, um, interesting one, Mitch. You've gone for Dan Burke and Robert Olsen's Body. Yeah. Shall I I elaborate briefly on why I chose it? Mm -hmm. Give me a little bit of information here. Let's go back to... When you first saw it, how you found it, why you chose it for this format. Okay, so I saw it initially, I believe, at Fright Fest in London in 2015. And it was like an impossible slot to choose. It was the four screens, everything had something that looked either kind of like interesting or great. Right. And in this kind of like rooting for the underdog thing, the synopsis for this just kind of piqued my curiosity. And I decided to not only go for it myself, but also managed to convince like three or four other people to come with me. I... and I really liked it. I thought it was I thought it was a really really interesting film. I <laughs> like that it does so much with such a simple idea and right. so little. Mm-hmm. Can I ask what the other two or three people you took with you thought of it? And they all liked it as well. Don't mind telling you that I liked it the most out of the three of us. I would say, <laughs> but sure. um, but uh, I didn't have anyone. Uh, I didn't have anyone be like I missed X film and you were responsible. So you know, it could have been worse. Right. Sure. Um, Sure. Yeah, but it's yeah, a look at the I, draw at a festival anyway. I mean, you might you go to see. I, I always try to take things I go to see at face value, um, and then not think about what I'm missing to see something. Particularly at Fright Fest, it's not so much a problem at other festivals, but it's kind of so you don't get that I, I missed out on this guilty feeling that you just can't shake for the whole weekend because you feel like you missed something awesome. Yeah, it is. It's always it's always a frustrating thing. But <laughs> yeah, this is one of those things. So this this was the only time I think this ever screened on a cinema screen in the UK. It literally showed at Fright Fest on the Saturday and came out in DVD on the Monday. Can I ask you what slot it was in? It was like a Saturday afternoon, if I remember rightly, like three, four o'clock in the afternoon. Right, okay. 
Um, yeah, I really like this, and uh, it came like I said, it came out on DVD, so I had an, a- an avenue to show it to people, and I didn't realize. I, I don't think enough people have seen this, but I also didn't realize that it is generally like until I was thinking about what I was going to do for this, I didn't realize that it also wasn't particularly well liked critically out of the few who have seen it. Right. It's currently sitting. It's like a four point six on IMDb and like a forty seven or forty eight on Rotten Tomatoes. It's something like that. So I thought both underseen and underrated, and I thought that was a good enough combo for me to try it out on here. Right, and it was a film that you liked enough in the first place that I've never heard you mention it. <laughs> okay, settle, dude. <laughs> right, um, I've listened to the show before, so I think I know what comes next. Well, it's funny that you say that, because I've put uh, some time on the clock here, and I'm going to ask you, Mitch, if you can, if possible, if you're willing and ready and able, will you, Mitch Bain, give me, Andy Stewart, your best 30-second synopsis of Body? I would be delighted. You would be delighted, would you? Right, okay. Well, uh, I'm going to start a countdown now if you're ready. Three, two, one, go. It's December 23rd and friends Holly, Callie and Mel are bored. To kind of kill time, they go to Callie's aunt and uncle's house, which she knows will be empty. They go there, it's huge, they start kind of clowning around. At one point, Holly realises that it's not her aunt and uncle's house. It turns out to be a family that she babysits for. An unidentified man, played by Larry Fessenden, enters at this point. A struggle ensues, they throw him down the stairs and appear to kill him. The rest of the film plays out as a kind of morality play because you have three people who have killed one man Time. when they've basically broken out into a house. Wow. I think I think for scene setting, that wasn't too bad. I think you got you, you hit most of the points there, I think. Uh, I don't really think you missed anything out because it is quite a slight story. It's This is kind of it's kind of frugal storytelling. Uh, yeah, I think that that's one of the film's strengths, in my opinion. I think once you get past the main setup, which I think is about the 20-minute mark or so, the remaining kind of 50, 55 minutes of this, um, there's not an ounce of fat on it. And I think that the reason that that's a relatively easy film to do a 30-second synopsis of is that the setup is what you have to spend the time on because you get kind of spoilery after that because it kind mm-hmm. of just sets up this fairly simple conceit and just feeds you twists every 20 minutes or so. Also, as you mentioned, coming in at a slight and uh, tight 75 minutes. Yeah, yeah, which I think, you know what, there's room in the world for those. I That was that was one of the deciding factors in me checking it out, I think. <laughs> Get it out of the way, get to the pub faster. <laughs> well, you. maybe. Um, but yeah, this one opens with a panicked 911 call, or at least it appears to be a panicked 911 call um, over the opening credits. I, I don't mind this, and I like the way that it cycles back to it at the end, yeah, but sure. I don't yeah, particularly too. like this whole kind of like, uh, you know, like, and it doesn't come up, but you know it's basically that where it's like four hours earlier. <laughs> I mean, I didn't get that at all. I'm happy to tell you that the film kind of wrong-footed me until a certain point, and I was like, ah, right, okay, that's what that was all about at the start then. Oh, yeah, I all mean, oh, right, okay, 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 right, I, I see, I see. No, I think I think there's like a line in the Rick and Morty episode where Morty says that a story shouldn't start where it gets interesting, it should start where it starts. <laughs> okay, cool, uh, yeah, I totally get that, yeah. A lot of films do that, actually, they, they kind of, they jump right in, like, in the immediate aftermath of some action. Yeah, or, or, the, or just, like, right before a crucial moment <laughs> yeah kind of join you join the film at like a mexican standoff absolutely yeah exactly <laughs> that and i kind of and, and i mean i think that this to be fair it's it's not a particularly egregious example of it here i don't think because no, no, no. it doesn't give very much away at all but i think watching it again and knowing what was coming i kind of sigh a little bit when i realized that's what they're doing yeah and by the way i just want to mention 
uh, this week's mini-sode was the first mini-sode that we put the festive opener back on it. Mm-hmm. And this, I totally forgot this is kind of a Christmas film. I, I mean, it is a Christmas film. They, they make a big point of the, the fact that we're coming into Christmas. Uh, you've got some carols going on in there, which, as everyone knows, I think are inherently creepy. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely, definitely used for that purpose here. Yeah, for sure. This film opens on a woman in a state of some distress, Mitch. I'm amazed you didn't mention that. I would go as far as to describe it as a state of some distress, Andy, certainly. <laughs> but yeah, and once we kind of cycle out with that kind of panic phone call, we get an introduction to our protagonists, who I'm going to hazard a guess you're not too hot on in first impression. Uh, no, I don't like any of them. I've actually written a note here. Uh, that says I hate these girls. So how far in did you come to that conclusion? Um, I can tell you because I can tell you from my notes just after the call from Ben. The first call from Ben. So yeah, we've got Holly here who's kind of the main character of the thing played by Helen Rogers. She's in VHS. Yeah, also very briefly in Darling as well. Oh yeah, yeah she is. She absolutely is. She's got that kind of Tysa Farmiga thing going on here where you're like, what age are you? Especially when kind of stacked up against her pals, more so Callie, who looks around about 30. Yeah, I think that Callie also, I think, is, um, she can, she sells unlikable in a very different way right out of the gate than the other two. I hate her. I think that, I'm sorry, I've um, got to say, I hate her. Oh, she's, she's a horrendous character, but obviously, obviously that's the intention. I think that if you dislike the other two instantly out of the gate, I would say that that's not the film's intention. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and um, Callie here, played by Alexandra Tertian, and uh, Mel by Lauren Molina. Yes. And yeah, they're kind of just kicking it, kicking about in Mel's parents' house, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're, they're playing Scrabble. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get that. I don't know if you get this, but I, I certainly feel that any time there's a board game involved, tensions rise and like people get aggressive and competitive. And I actually think board games. Pr- I think if you break it down somewhere, there's a statistic that most fights in the home are caused by a board game. <laughs> well, I mean, also like uh, that, and uh, as Adam Marcus told us, the most popular murder weapon being the knife from the Thanksgiving turkey. So there you go, you've got Christmas time, I, I imagine I mean there's so little time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, they're, they're fairly like, close in terms of the calendar. So I mean you've got mm-hmm, board yeah. games, you've got drinking drugs in this situation and you also have the festive period that's a recipe for disaster man, that's an absolute melting pot. <laughs> that, is, that is very true and um, yeah as you say um, uh, they do eventually go out and they do smoke weed, oh dear Oh the devil's um, lettuce! But before that the devil's lettuce yeah precisely um before that i think a great minor performance in here uh we meet mel's dad by the way it's kind of explained later um but in this early running i had a really hard time with the introduction of the dad i was ripping my hair out i couldn't fathom at all why he comes into the scene and performs the whole scene wearing sunglasses Mm -hmm. i was like what's going on is he just you know the wanker that wears sunglasses in a nightclub yeah sure I was like, why is he wearing sunglasses? To me, it's a weird thing even to have written in the script, to have written that <laughs> as the, you know, the reveal of the reason why he wears... I'll just spoil it now. He Apparently, he wears, sun, he wears the sunglasses all the time because he smokes so much weed, and he wants to hide the fact that he's got eyes like dog's balls from his kids. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, 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 yeah. Perfectly reasonable. But to me, it's such a weird and arbitrary thing to have written in a script. It's a piece of information you don't need at all. I feel like maybe the actor wore sunglasses and refused to remove them and they had (laughs) to explain it in the script later on so they wrote that in. It's baffling to me and it's a head scratcher. I think performance-wise the guy's doing pretty good work though. Um... (laughs) He's doing fine but there's a discussion. Uh, I think uh, the dad's trying to arrange a meeting with Holly's parents. 
or Holly's um, dad. Holly's who, dad specifically, who it seems is like a uh, like a politician of kind of some level of seniority. He's trying to arrange a game of golf with him, I think. And uh, yeah. he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And they're kind of taking the piss out the dad a little bit, going, "Look, no one wants to hang around with you. You're a, you're a loser." And you're... I think the reason, quite frankly, that he doesn't want to play golf with him is that he won't take his fucking sunglasses off. <laughs> Maybe. Jackie caught him. Jackie um, saw but, this bit but, as well, and she and Jackie was like, "Is he blind?" That's a reasonable first assumption. Yeah, and um, I guess it would have been more explain. <laughs> it would have been easier to explain if he was blind rather than just be a guy wearing sunglasses in his own house. Yeah, because he's a because he's a massive stoner. But we don't hang around here very long because uh, they go outside. In fact, it's worth mentioning before they head away. Uh, it's worth mentioning that we do get um, the first of a couple of phone calls from uh, Holly's boyfriend Ben. Can I just say I. I dislike Ben right out of the gate. I... Right out of the gate. I don't like him in the phone call, but I've got a lot to say about Ben when you meet him in person. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's reasonable. But I think, like, yeah, he's kind of, like, immediately, he strikes you as that kind of, like, untrusting kind of possessive type, I think, straight away. Yeah. He gets on the phone and he's like, oh, what are you guys up to? And she's like, oh, you know, but she kind of makes a joke. She's like, um, oh, you know, we're just chilling and we're uh, wrapping presents for orphans or something like that. And he kind of laughs and he's like, yeah, no, seriously, though, what are you doing? <laughs> I like that he just knows them enough to go there's no way you've got Callie wrapping a present <laughs> yeah <laughs> wrapping presents for orphans are you fuck <laughs> yeah um, did you notice that just after this because they kind of take the piss out about the fact that she's got this new boyfriend and one of them sings Bump and Grind by R. Kelly yeah uh, when she's um uh, when she's deciding whether or not to eat more food yeah I'm not con- I'm not convinced that's aged well uh, no, uh, definitely not. That's that's fair, but you know that's not the film's fault. Um, but yeah, basically, uh, basically Holly and Mel are kind of ready to turn in. They're ready to call it a night. Callie refuses, says that they're being boring and they should be out living their lives and so on. She comes up with the idea that they should go to her aunt and uncle's house because they are always gone at this time of year for a couple of months. The house is always empty. It's huge. Uh, they have loads of booze. They should go up there. So sure enough, they get in the car and away they go. Yeah. At this point, they have an encounter with... Well, Ben phones again, actually, at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, just, as, just as kind of like uh, needy, untrustworthy, prying, kind of he plants that seed in the first call. In the second call, he invites himself along to a girl's night. Yeah, and there's a bit of consternation amongst the girls about the fact that essentially what Holly's done is given the thumbs up to her new boyfriend intruding upon their girls' night. I think that that is a reasonable gripe to have with her at this point. I, I think that, that I think that's a weak move on her part. 100%, and it works the other way as well. Have you ever had, like, you, you're having a boys' night, you've got your mates round, and then one of their girlfriends turns up and you're like... Huh. To look at that from my perspective as well, right? So, like, if if, th- if this was me and it was uh, my girlfriend and a couple of her friends, I would not assume that the rest of them would want me to be there. No, and I would also, and if it was me, I would say, do you know what? You're with the girls, we can do this. We'll do this tomorrow. Or... Yeah, like, literally, literally any other time. Yeah, I'm not going to come out in the snow and the cold and uh, come and intrude upon a night with people I don't know crucially like yeah this is the thing it's like he uh he isn't just like oh they're at the pub at the bottom of the street do you want to come out he's like oh I'll drive 45 minutes in the snow to the remote country mansion that you're at to come and intrude your girls night it's like an incredible amount of effort to horn in on something that has nothing to do with you in my opinion um on the way here they encounter and kind of shun this disheveled looking bearded man who 
on first approach, I, when I saw this for the first time, I was certain that he was going to be the, you know, the cabin in the woods archetype of the Harbinger. The Harbinger, yeah, yeah. I thought he looked a lot like the old guy from Home Alone, you know, the, the South Bend Shovel Slayer. Oh, yeah, I hear you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, this, this is a character who's introduced and doesn't really have any bearing at all, but they, they, they spend a fair amount of time lingering on him. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, it's kind of like a lead-in for a joke, and it, they talk about it for quite a while, but he yeah, he's <laughs> gone and never comes back. Yeah, he's referred to as... Uh, the creepy beard man I know is that any beardy guy I mean are you a creepy beard man a, a CBM I wouldn't like to think that I'm a CBM I'm probably, I probably like I wouldn't like to think that I've been branded one too often <laughs> um, and I think in instances where I have I can incredibly, incredibly defend myself I hope certainly hope so um, but yeah no I think creepy beard man you know we know nothing about this guy apart from the fact that he likes uh, having a fair bit of face foliage and I think that that's it's unfair to profile him in that way yeah and he's also got quite a quite a mane of hair yes very true yeah, he's but a- I feel like I feel like we are spending too much of a surplus of time on this guy in the same way that the film does. They get there, first first sign of something not being immediately right. Callie doesn't immediately know where the key is, although I don't think that you would spot that on first watch. No, that, actually, um, what it got me doing was that I was thinking that this is the moment where things were maybe going to take a weird turn. Like, I was like, ooh... How's this going to play out? She expected okay, the key okay. to be in one place, but it was in another place. Is somebody already in the house? Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hear that. That would also have been a, a, a kind of an interesting way for it to go. But ultimately, she finds the key. Uh, they go in there, and um, the house is pretty insane. I don't know where they found this house. This actually might be uh, a good time to talk about something really quickly that I meant to touch on in the intro. Everything about, and I know that this is a really common thing, right? Uh-huh. But uh, everything about the DVD release of this in the UK is horrendous oh right like okay. the actual physical product is is one of the worst things i've ever seen it completely missells the film in my opinion can i ask you is it uh the the film title the same on the box yes the film is still called body which is about the only thing that it gets right as so, the box um, art insane yeah well it's I'll, I'll tell you right so basically and you this is this is on the internet go find it it's it's <laughs> dreadful and i mean if you look around the annoying thing is that there was loads of really good artwork for this film like loads of really cool artwork i thought but what you have in the uk release i don't know what it's like everywhere else is that you have a stairwell that is not the stairwell from the film <laughs> sure. standing at standing atop the stairwell is what appears to be about a 10 year old girl in a dress with helen rogers's head photoshopped on top of it <laughs> um in in the bottom of the frame a hand is like reaching up the stairs as if trying to grab her leg which doesn't happen in the film <laughs> um, at this point i'm just i'm gonna spoil that the the titular body is larry fessenden right but we'll get to that right sure um, yes yeah on the back of the dvd there is a house which is not the house from the film with a dead body in the back garden which is not where the body is in the film and the body is not larry fessenden <laughs> also uh, i'd like to draw attention i've just googled the the box art there that you're talking about and i can see it's it's pretty bad um but there's also, also a yeah. quote on there from alan jones from fright fest who calls what does it, it say who calls it one of the year's darkest and most gripping thrillers i think it is really dark but we'll get to that i think it gets to, i think it gets into extremely dark territory but um yeah they get here this house is uh pretty great they um as is the kind of the car collection that they happen on they play safe and instead of joyriding one of the cars they joyride a golf cart presumably what they use to navigate this massive estate that they live on i and, think uh, as well part of that is maybe callie who as we kind of gather is very devil may care i think that was her maybe not knowing how to 
get access to the cars. That's fair. Her kind of covering herself. Her kind of covering up the lie kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it is now Christmas Eve. Midnight passes while they're kind of clowning around. At this point, right? So I know that you said out of the gate you didn't like any of the characters. The car journey, I think that one of the reasons why the kind of the talk about the Harbinger guy and a few other things are played out a little bit longer than they might be in the car is that there's not a massive amount of story to this film, which I don't think is to its detriment. But because of that, there's not a great amount of room for you to learn stuff about the characters. I think that the reason that you see them clowning around for so much time at the start here and kind of chatting away in the car is because in a film this short, you need to have something that gives you some room to learn something about them and invest in them and figure out who you like and don't like. Yeah. Having now seen them for, I guess, what's approaching 20 minutes, because I'm pretty sure the 20 minute mark is where it kind of takes a turn. Do you like them anymore? Any of them? Uh, no, not especially. I'm finding, and although it's fairly apt, uh, I'm finding the stoned voices of particularly Mel irritating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I'm like, oh god, right, okay, I get it, you're stoned, fine, great. What I did like, um, and as much as I don't like carols, and I don't know if these are the real lyrics, but there was a moment in one of the carols where the lyrics changed very much to talking about Jesus's dick. I'm no model Christian, but I don't believe those are the original lyrics. No, no, I mean, if any, if there's any kind of priests or nuns or anybody out there that wants to reach out and tell us, uh, whether or not those are the actual lyrics, then, uh, yeah, please do. You're looking for clarification on whether God rest ye merry gentlemen is about Jesus' penis. Only only seem to be one verse. <laughs> I mean, if we don't ask, how else will we know? Yeah, I don't think the whole um, song's about Jesus' dick, but it could be, like, a bonus content, like the 12-inch version. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, folks. I've peaked. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that. Um, at this point, we get a kind of montage of them clowning around in a very wholesome fashion inside the house, um, including kind of playing a kind of shooting game in the apparent arcade that is inside the house. Oh, man. It's like uh, Josh's uh, house and Big always wanted his house with, like, bunk beds and a loft and, like, toys and games. Yeah, exactly. And at this point, Holly goes to the bathroom and makes the surprising discovery that if both Callie and the family photos are to be believed, her aunt and uncle are of Asian uh, extraction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Every photo in the house is of like an Asian family having like those really cringy family photos. Yeah, and uh, given that um, Callie is white as the driven snow, this seems to not quite top. Yeah, she's very waspy. <laughs> Fair, yeah. So um, while Holly goes back and confronts Callie about this, um, a car pulls into the driveway and an unidentified motorist arrives. Yeah. Uh, Ca- Mystery Fessenden, as it'll turn it to be. He's arriving while Callie's spinning this web of lies about how uh, the owner of the house was an adopted cousin or something. And like uh, this, this lie is so flimsy, it doesn't hold up under any kind of scrutiny for very long at all. And she eventually kind of no. admits that, yeah, she used to babysit someone who lived at this house. Yeah, and she knows that it's vacant for months at a time because they always go away around the time of Christmas. So Callie and Holly obviously understandably very annoyed and want to leave. Uh, Callie seems amenable to doing this, but at this point, an unidentified man, played by Larry Fessenden, enters the building. <laughs> they try to run past him, a struggle a struggle ensues, and uh, ultimately I believe it's Holly that kind of like accidentally or inadvertently pushes him down the stairs. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, at this point, I firmly believe that Fessenden would, after this point, because my note goes, yay, Fessenden, oh. <laughs> uh, because that's kind of, at this point, that's his exposure in the film. And I firmly believed he was going to play a dead body for the rest of the film. Yeah, I mean, and with good reason. And I mean, I think that, like, it's good that you thought that. Because I think that, obviously, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but when it turns out that he's not actually dead, I think that it's a great way to shift gears. Yeah. Like, I think I think it works really nicely. Um, But yeah, so basically, as it stands at the moment, what you have here is... 
Holly, Callie and Mel who are in a house they have no business being in with the dead body of an unidentified man at the bottom of the stairwell. Now did I miss something? Do we actually find out who Fessenden is? We later find out when he kind of comes to he explains that he is the groundskeeper. Ah right okay yeah I must have missed that that little nugget of information. Doesn't really change the fact that he's turned up at this house and been confronted by these three girls and being thrown down the stairs to what on the surface anyway as his death yeah it appears to be his death now i think that as a conceit at the end of act one i think that this is great i think that the situation that it's kind of the situation that it's kind of converged into is really really smart and i don't remember seeing anything that reminded me of it at the time i've seen a few more films since then but i remember at the time thinking that this was a really cool idea right okay okay um yeah i've got i had no problem with this because right away you know right they've got a kind of decision to make here how they play this do they, do they run or do they try to kind of cover the track? Yeah, and I think that at this point you kind of see that like what you have here now, you've got Callie who kind of is forever the kind of devil on the shoulder, almost a Mel, and Holly who's the angel on the shoulder, Mel almost, because Mel I think exists in the kind of middle ground, whereas Holly and Callie kind of take up opposite ends of the moral spectrum. Holly immediately wants to call the police and just wait and see what happens. Callie points out that uh, because... Fessenden, whose character doesn't have a name, so I'm fine with just calling him Live Fessenden. Um, <laughs> she points out that he can't defend himself uh, and suggests that uh, what they do instead is assassinate his character, say that, fair enough, they shouldn't have been where they were, but he entered and attacked them and ultimately suggests that, for kind of maximum incrimination, that they fabricate an attempt to drape. Yeah, um, and then there's a, a whole mad bit where like Mel says, oh, if, if this happens, my mum will kill herself. There's a lot of real speculation. Um, well, I mean, uh, basically, yeah, I think, that, and Callie kind of points out, she's, she's obviously, I mean, Callie's transparently 100% acting in her own self-interest here what she's trying to do is um guilt everyone into kind of coming around to her way of thinking and trying to basically absolve themselves of any responsibility for this thing she does this by pointing out that mel's academic career will end yeah um she'll get kicked out of law school also her dad's political career will be over she like i said transparently doesn't care about these things but is just trying to remind the other girls of the kind of real world consequences of them going down for murder yeah callie falls very quickly into kind of machiavellian maneuvering this is second nature they are uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. She walks into being the evil one, like in uh, in a very, very uh, kind of uh, heavy-handed kind of way, at a rate that could only be described as breakneck. I think that that's fair to say, yeah. But ultimately, uh, Mel, less thinking, ah, you know, I'm saying that Mel kind of occupies the model grey area. She, on first kind of first look, goes along with the idea of kind of fabricating this attempt to drape. And when you when you see them kind of trying to stage this thing, this gets increasingly unpleasant in a way. I think is actually like quite difficult to watch in bits. Yeah, those, the, the kind of last part of this plan is particularly disturbing. All this stuff kind of where... Um, yeah, because they're like getting like Fessenden's like they're holding his hand and kind of manipulating it so that he scratches her and they're ripping clumps of hair out her head and like ripping her shirt um, I mean all that stuff's kind of by the numbers the kind of stuff you would expect but then the, uh -huh, the, the, until... the, kind of, the kind of fourth part of this plan if you like is when um, Holly drops her pants and um, takes Fessenden's hand and rubs it over her, her womanly bits yes correct um so she does this and obviously um doesn't want to doesn't want to stick around on the scene after that uh hurries away back into the living room with the other girls and at this point we see twist fessenden is not dead fessenden is awake but can't really do very much for himself obviously because he's got an obviously broken neck and he's at the bottom of the stairs but so he keeps quiet they don't realize at this point that he isn't dead that he's still alive 
so they're at this point prepping themselves to uh, make a 911 call. I think it's kind of cool and something that I wouldn't have thought of that you see them trying to work themselves up into a fit of hysteria before they make the call. Yeah, they get themselves kind of into this state of kind of hyperventilation. So <laughs> you can call it a state of some distress if you like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they kind of make sure they're hyperventilating and they're panting and they're clearly kind of freaking out rather than... Because you do hear about this, and anyone who listens to anything to do with real, like true crime knows that quite often the downfall of the killer is they place a call, the cops turn up, and they seem surprisingly cool and not really that fussed about it. Or in some cases, the performance they put on is staggeringly bad. Yeah, I, th- I think this is a cool detail to include. I think all these little tidbits, like the plan they put in place to kind of reinforce the story that they're going to tell, like kind of to put their narrative in place. I think yeah, okay, I, 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 I think all, I think, I think it's all quite nicely put together. All this stuff's really cool. I, I actually thought that when she's kind of using Fessenden's hand between her legs. Um, and then she goes away and you see that he's awake. Certainly when you see him at first, he has a look of real menace about him, and I thought, well, oh, fucking hell, he's he's going to be getting back up here. He's got he's got revenge on his mind. But no, see, what again, I thought... they flipped it again, and he's very much paralysed. Yeah, um, I think it would have been interesting if uh, he'd interacted with them more, and it had been him kind of trying to turn them against each other and kind of not kind of like kind of use the situation to his advantage or something. But I think that, yeah, when he wakes up and when they realise he's awake, because obviously right before they made the call... Holly hears something and they go and investigate and it's this point where they actually talk to him and I think it's this point where you find out that he's the groundskeeper I think I want to say actually I think Larry Fessenden's great in this film for as much as he has to do I think Larry Fessenden's generally great I think he I think and obviously he's got you know an incredible amount of credits now and I think that every time he's in it whatever he's doing whenever every time he's in something I think he brings a kind of gravitas to it and he does this with very little because he does spend literally the entire film on his back yeah yeah more or less and I think that he's immediately sympathetic here because he doesn't accuse anyone of anything or anything like that he just immediately asks is somebody called an ambulance is somebody coming to help me and stuff like that I think that Fessenden again I think he's very sympathetic but also extremely uncomfortable to look at every time he's talking I agree, and it's kind of made worse by the fact that this is a guy who's pleading for his life constantly. He's constantly pleading and begging for help. It's so difficult to watch these girls just walking away and essentially going and sitting in another room and hoping that he dies while he's he's um, desperately trying to kind of get the point across that he's in a lot of pain, (laughs) clearly, and he he really needs medical assistance as soon as possible. It's it's a horrible thing to watch someone just beg for their life and know that that's going unanswered yeah it is it's, it's really i think it's it's a really unpleasant passage in the film but also it does kind of add this extra kind of cl- like this kind of ticking clock element now holly wants to call an ambulance and run at this point which i think is the first kind of like chink in the armor of her kind of moral compass if you like sure yeah because <laughs> yeah. she's at this point she's kind of trying to bail him out but also bail themselves out um, but a new plan is needed, regardless. Uh, Callie <laughs> wants to just Callie wants to wait it out and leave him to die, which I think is the worst option. I tell you, man, she's like a the most reprehensible option there is. She is, she is, she is. Um, but yeah, you kind of get this kind of time passing thing where they're kind of sitting trying to kind of figure it out. Holly goes to check on Fessenden sometimes, but there's been a passage of time. He's still alive at this point. It seems like I think. Holly's kind of clinging on to kind of be in the status of the one that you're supposed to root for in the group when Callie and Mel are both kind of just waiting for him to die. I mean, Mel's not really doing anything. She's almost teetering on a state of, like, catatonia. Do you know what I mean? She's, like, she's just a second away from breaking down, I feel, the whole time. Whereas Holly and Callie 
are a bit more grounded and stable, but on total different ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think that's fair. I think that yeah, Mel kind of uh, yeah, she's she's yeah, she's not she's not delirious. I think yeah, Catatonia is not a bad way of putting it. Actually, it's like she um she's just kind of she's in this kind of permanent glaze almost. Yeah, definitely that. Yeah, but Callie tries to pass the time and chill everybody out by giving some uh, helpful little tidbits about the uh, yeah. nesting uh, habits of bald eagles. <laughs> yeah exactly right i have a question for you at this point oh um sure fire um, away when they heard the noise outside had you forgotten that ben was coming i had yeah yeah i had because i had pretty much forgotten about ben because until this point he's a voice on a phone and to me the brother turning up would have been less of a surprise <laughs> yeah no i totally forgot that ben had been invited there and but as you know um i have a very short memory and i never see anything coming so i was just <laughs> curious if you had picked it up any more than i had no i had, but, I had um, forgotten it. i think and in, in amongst all the craziness and um, uh, plans to get away with murder essentially uh, i had forgotten about the arrival the imminent arrival of ben yeah i mean um it's uh well Chekhov's ben never phone a ben in act one you don't use an act three <laughs> never phone a Ben in Act 1 that doesn't turn up and turn out to be a terrible actor in Act 2 <laughs> right okay yeah um, I, I suppose that now's as good a time as any to talk about that you, you don't want an extra pair of hands in this situation no no no, um, no. you don't have to bring someone into the situation and desperately try to, to I mean, it's an interesting tableau to open any door to. That's certainly true, but I think that yeah, this is more of a this is more of a too many cooks spoil the broth than a many hands make like work situation. One hundred percent. But my first thought when I saw Ben was, oh, get a load of this guy. What the fuck age is he meant to be? Is he a teacher? Like I was like, <laughs> I was like, this guy is pushy. This guy's ages with me. Well, what are you girls up to? Um, <laughs> oh, hi, I... fellow kids. <laughs> Um, yeah, the first thing that I wrote down when Ben appeared was uh, Ben! Exclamation mark. Not what I expected him to look like. No, not I. Not I. I was. My, my mind was more blown by the arrival of Ben and his appearance than any other thing that happens in the film. I think that. Um, I think that Callie makes a massive tactical blunder here because if I was her, I would be trying to get Ben to leave in the most understated and kind of least dramatic way possible. I don't know necessarily what I would have said, but I don't think I would have been like, oh, we know what you did. Uh, you cheated on her so she doesn't want to talk to you and all this kind of thing because because it immediately makes a fraught situation more fraught than it needs to be. Yeah, because, I mean, he tries to fight his own corner to an extent and uh, kind of barges into the house anyway. Yeah, yeah, and he was going to do that regardless. So I think yeah. that, like, um, um, so I think that, like, stirring the pot in the way that she does is a massively bad decision. I thought for sure he was going to wind up dead as well. Uh, yeah, I could, I can understand that. Um, at this point, we've moved, uh, they've moved Fessenden into the living room, haven't they? And um, so Holly's kind of barricading the door shut. Well, Fessenden almost, and he ultimately succeeds um, in upending an entire tray's worth of glassware using only his mouth. Yeah, see that bit with uh, Fessenden's kind of tongue in that tassel. Yeah. I found that extremely uncomfortable to watch. I thought you were going to be like, I find that extremely sexual. Yeah. <laughs> oh, tongue my tassel, laddie. Ultimately, Holly kind of uh, gets Ben to leave just just shortly after he's left. Uh, Fessenden successfully pulls the tassel and upends the glassware, which would have been a handy way to get the attention of an interloper such as Ben. But yes. no such luck. He's gone. Presumably that tray fell um, on his face. I mean, yeah, there wasn't much. Because there's not really much other places for it to go. <laughs> you ever done that thing where you're like lying on your back on your bed or the couch or something and you're like, you're on your mobile phone 
or you're holding something and you're maybe like a remote control and you're kind of looking at it and then it suddenly I, I don't know what it is but it just like drops onto your face are you, you're asking me if i've ever dropped my own phone on my face i think we both know that yes i have dropped my own phone in my face multiple times <laughs> Sure. Sorry, Mitch. I forgot who I was dealing with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I forgot that you had a Samsung imprinted on your forehead, like some kind of corporate brand in a in like a, a kind of futuristic dystopian movie. <laughs> This is the permanent phone-shaped bruise on my forehead. <laughs> At this point, obviously, Holly had been saying that she'd trusted Fessenden and saying the fact that he wasn't going to um, give anything away or anything like that. At this point, Callie thinks that this is now patently bullshit, obviously. She wants to kill him. While I don't agree None with Callie's uh, decision to proceed to murder, I kind of have to agree with her assessment that there's just about no way he wouldn't tell. Uh, yes, I think that our solution is too extreme, but I think our <laughs> reasoning is sound. <laughs> sure, yes. So at this point, she presents the kind of ultimatum as being either take action or turn themselves in. And at this point, Callie is overruled by Holly and Mel, who both say to turn themselves in. At this point, Holly and Mel make the extraordinarily foolish decision of letting Callie self-appoint herself as being the person that's going to make the phone call. So she disappears off into another room, leaves her phone in the kitchen. Holly and Mel have this kind of wistful conversation about the fact that they've basically fucked themselves for life. <laughs> I don't, I don't mind watching things like this, and because uh, I mean, obviously that 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 sounds like a criticism, and it's not at all. I don't mind watching films where characters don't do the sensible thing and don't do the thing I would have done, because it's arguable that for quite a lot of this, they're not presented as being the smartest. <laughs> I mean, they keep, early in the, the film, they keep telling you how kind of drunk and fucked they are. So um, perhaps there's some chemical issue at play here where they're maybe a bit fucked and therefore not making the clearest decisions. Yeah, I think, I, I, I think that they kind of, uh, some of the blunders that you see them make and things like that, I think that they kind of track as presented, you know what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that this this is this is this is kind of one of those, but it's all too late. Callie's barricaded the door, and uh, this time we really do say goodbye to Fessenden. How bad is Callie at this? That she, I mean, the first thing I would do is if I was like, right, well, I'll go and make the call. I would hold my phone up and I'd do a little a little wiggle of the phone, and then I'd go out the room with my phone in my hand. Surely mm-hmm. that's surely that's misdirection one hundred and one. Yeah, just yeah. I mean, just like uh, I mean, certainly certainly don't leave your phone in the room where the two people are saying. Like, don't do that. Yeah, because you're not going to phone from the house phone. Very <laughs> true. true. <laughs> Who uses a You guys house wait phone? here. I'm gonna I'm gonna find the landline phone. Oh, retro. <laughs> so he's gone at this point. She's smothered him with a pillow. He is dead. Horrible. She has. She kind of reframes the narrative at this point. Um, and says that it's time to leave him leave him where they found him at the bottom of the stairs and leave yeah Mel crosses to the dark side at this point she wants to go too and Holly kind of in reaction to this kind of looks like she's going to go along with it uh, tries to break for it Callie grabs her tackles her and knocks her out and uh, screams in her face yeah she's cold as ice now she's she's lost it totally lost it she she donks Holly's head off the floor with a really satisfying clonk I, I think that I, I think that her kind of uh, escalating into being the kind of proper villain of the piece plays out pretty nicely. I think it's I, th- I think it's a pretty believable escalation because she doesn't seem she seems to be a pretty horrible person right from the beginning. The thing about Callie that gets me though is that there's never a moment a doubt in her mind. There's never any soul searching. There's never coming to terms with what she's done. There's never even a, a glimmer of that. She just goes from asshole 
to murder her in no time at all and there's never really any humanity to her which I find really off-putting. She's never confronted the consequences of her actions like ever in this I don't think. But that to me makes her an, an off-putting character like it's, it's one thing to be a villain right being a villain's cool if you can write a compelling villain then that's excellent but see I actually find her character to be completely one-dimensional in that regard because there is never a a moment's doubt in her mind. She flies so easily into murder. She's played as if she's done this a million times. Yeah, I th- I, that's a good point, I guess. I think that her going from where she starts to where she ends up is a kind of believable arc, but I think that you're right that the film would probably benefit from her being a little bit humanised during the kind of darker parts of this. Absolutely, and, and I, I guess ultimately her redemption comes in the aftermath. Yeah, I guess that's true. And where this goes, I mean, I, I've i got no problem with how this film ends. I think that there is a passage here, though, that feels like... Because this is a short film anyway. Yes. And I, f- I feel like this is the only part that feels like it's like, ah, this has come in at 64 minutes. We need something. <laughs> and, like, um, because I think that at the point where, obviously, you have Callie knocking out Holly and then Holly being tied up and Callie introducing this new version of the story where uh, Fessenden has attacked Holly and Callie intervenes by killing Larry Fessenden kind of to save her friend. Yeah. I feel like we could have had that presented and have, because ultimately, not to jump ahead, but we kind of have to, to have the thing where Holly ultimately kills Callie. Yeah. I think that we could have reached that in a way that didn't need to have this part where Holly's tied up and cuts through her restraints with a shard of glass that she surreptitiously pulls towards herself with her foot and stuff like that. I kind of forgotten that this happens. And when she came to and her hands were tied up with yellow rope, I did kind of roll my eyes a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Um, I, I did very much the same thing, if I'm honest. Yeah, like I think that, like I say, I think that where this ultimately goes is fine. But just this kind of part where she has to kind of yeah free herself after hearing the kind of you know it's kind of a no mr bond i expect you to die situation and she so but holly eventually cuts herself free and kind of hides her hands until it's too late and then eventually she kills she kills callie by bludgeoning her with a table leg and screams in her face in a scream that i do not buy <laughs> it's obviously supposed to be a mirror of the scream that we saw when callie knocked her uh, knocked holly out earlier on but um it's it's a much worse scream I oh yeah it's, it. I, it's delivered with a fraction of the conviction uh, yeah, it's it's actually um, I actually vividly remember uh, that that elicited an unintentional laugh in both the screening of the film I was in and also in subsequent viewings at home with friends. <laughs> I mean, oh, the only man. reason that there wasn't an unintentional laugh this time when I watched it is because I was watching it on my own and I knew it was coming. Just I just wrote it was bad. Um, that's what's in my note that that wasn't a very good scream. No, um, and it and it sounds like a very slight criticism, but it's actually pretty important i think because it's the it's it's the dramatic kind of apex of the film and it does kind of let the air out of it a little bit yeah if Callie's such an effective schemer i feel like tying someone up kind of flies in the face of your narrative okay right because the minute somebody's tied up their natural kind of desire is to fight against the bonds which leaves marks and as far as I recall, the rope was never written into the narrative. No, she, 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 she either got that from somewhere or brought it from home. <laughs> I love that Callie's just walking around with a bit of yellow rope in her bag, which further reinforces actually the fact that she's mad. I've, inst- I've installed that as a trait as well. 100% that she just carries around like just handy kidnapping paraphernalia in her handbag. Yeah, I've got real questions about this, girl. It's uh, <laughs> legitimate. But um, yeah, Holly ultimately, like I say, frees herself, kills Callie with a little bit of help from Molly. Uh, so now you've got two dead bodies 
and the decision about what to do now falls to our survivors, Mel and Holly. And the way they reframe the narrative is interesting, and I'm just going to run through it and we can talk about it after, but sure. basically the way that they end up presenting it and how the police hear it and how we understand or we're, we're kind of like led to assume that they ultimately get away with everything that happens inside the house is that Larry Fessenden attacks Holly in their version, which and uh, where Callie intervenes, Fessenden kills Callie, and then in a fit of rage, Mel and Holly kill Larry Fessenden. So everyone kills everyone in self-defense, apart from uh, <laughs> like when uh, Fessenden attacks them in the first place. So he becomes the aggressor. <laughs> and uh, basically what happens here is that, or we're led to believe that where this will go, is that Mel and Holly will ultimately get away with this by telling a lie that reframes Callie as the hero of the piece. Which I think is... A- really really nice way to end it it's not a nice way to end it it's a reprehensible way to end it but i like the fact that they have to swallow their pride and do that what i think is interesting is uh how holly flip-flops on the ethics of murdering as this goes on <laughs> oh yeah she's uh becomes extremely kind of amenable to it and uh, i guess takes on a little bit of that kind of learns a little bit from what callie's taught her. i think the film still wants you to like her i think the film still wants you to sympathize with her a little bit and and that's why you see her and mel agonizing over this decision and stuff like that but basically what she's done is 100 percent adopt callie's ruthless self-preservation kind of at all costs in this way that in a lot of ways is no less reprehensible than what callie wanted to do no, 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 not at all. But again, it's that you, you have the same question in your mind at this point. It's like, right, well, we had one body, that's a problem. We've now got two bodies, that's a problem. Perhaps what Callie was suggesting, maybe not the worst idea, but what we can do here is, because ultimately she's supposed to be their friend, what we could do here is frame it in such a way where we're not really putting the blame on Callie as such. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that. Yeah, that's an interpretation. But I think that yeah, obviously, we're, what what we're left with here is everyone kind of getting off scot free for what's happened here, and that's how the film ends, with the police arriving, and you kind of then left to assume that the way that they have spun this will ultimately lead to their freedom, and with that kind of and with that body ends in extremely understated fashion with a very nice rendition of uh, Silent Night over the closing credits. Andy. Yes, Mitch. Hi. So. A first watch and a kind of and a, a fresh discovery for you. Uh, I've outlined the reasons why I like this. I also I am aware that this film is not perfect. I think that um, there are occasions in here. I think generally performance wise, I think that people are doing okay. I think Larry Fessenden is great. There are times where you can kind of see the seams in the performances a little bit. I think that this is like a really nicely tightly plotted indie horror with a really good idea at its core. It doesn't really waste any time doing anything that doesn't further that idea. Yeah, okay. And those are the things that I like about it, but I am very curious to know what you thought of this. Do you know, I thought it was fine. It was a Mm -hmm. perfectly serviceable way to pass 75 minutes. Would I watch it again? I think it would have to be on and I would have to be really, like, comfortable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Comfortable to the point where I was like, oh, I'll just watch this. I can kind of understand why it wouldn't necessarily lend itself to multiple viewings if you weren't as enamoured with it as I am, because I think that a lot of the appeal comes from the first watch and kind of not knowing the way that the twists are going to land and um, kind of seeing how they're going to work their way through it. I think watching it again and knowing that does take the air out of it a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd like you say, Larry Fessenden's brilliant. I thought Ben was shocking. I didn't really <laughs> believe the girls as friends. Oh, that's interesting. They felt like hires rather than people who felt like a cohesive friend group. I think what it maybe reminded me of a little bit is when you see, like, um, when I go home for Christmas or something, say. Right. 
and um you see you know everyone comes home for christmas and everyone goes out and then everyone has these kind of like slightly awkward encounters with people that they went to school with and stuff like that and sometimes you see people who were friends at school and have taken very different paths and then all get together again and it's like ah this doesn't really hang together anymore and that's the vibe that i get i think that when i when i look at it and i look at them it kind of feels like you can kind of see this bare bones of how they get along and i think the film invests just enough in their kind of banter for that to kind of get over the line but i think it looks like they're on the, on the verge or in the in the process of growing apart i think but i totally think that you just not buying them as a friend group is as legitimate a read of that yeah but i mean i, 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 I don't mind that i've seen in fact i love films where for not for a minute do i believe the central couple are a couple like uh, I'd, like, i love mm-hmm. films mm-hmm. where yeah yeah there's friend groups where people like that kind of like this film where people are clearly 18 and then the top end of the friend group's 45 but they're supposed to be <laughs> and like, right, hang on there's no way these people are friends and then you get the top end of the group who's a, like a rich bitch and then the person down at the bottom who's like a, like a geek and you're like nah they, they don't hang out it doesn't happen like these people are not friends um and it pulls me out a little bit and it does a little bit here because i'd never buy that they're friends um, mm-hmm. yeah that's fair that's fair but uh, do you know I didn't mind it? It was it was a it was fine. Would I recommend people watch it? Nah, if it's on, watch it. But I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest you you kind of drop what you're doing and go and watch Body right away. <laughs> I'm really curious to see how many people seek this out and um, what people make of this. And again, always like I say, because this is kind of like um, a quite tightly plotted kind of thriller thing, and I'm very easily blindsided by things. I'm also curious to know what other more perceptive people think of this <laughs> sure <laughs> but I'm, I'm i'm glad this i'm glad this was uh i'm glad this wasn't kind of like tumbling to the bottom of the uh of the mitch selections for you <laughs> it wasn't so six <laughs> there was a point in this where um i think it was you know that the uh the kind of hand between the legs moment yeah uh, or no it was it was the it was the in fact it was that yeah it was that because i remember thinking i was like oh i don't know if that would work because um at this point, obviously, you think he's dead. Yeah. And I'm looking at it, and I was like, "Oh, it's like um, uh, fingerprints lose their moisture really quickly. Uh, you wouldn't be able to do that." And I was just realizing that my medical research that I was basing that on was that the pathologist or crime scene investigator in Saw Six points that out. Right. Well, I mean, I'm I'm not entirely sure that the plan was to get his fingerprints on a fanny. I think it was more just to get uh, hot on his hand. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. But that was the, the first thing. The first thing. The, the first thing that came to my mind was what I learned from Sussex. Right. Okay. Okay. You try to get a uh, good ruffle in there to get some pubes under his fingernails. For Christ's sake. Yes, that. But it's worth mentioning, by the right. way, that um, the guys that made this then went on to make Stakeland Two, and they've just done Villains with My Common Role, which came out this year. Oh, that's pretty cool. So I mean, they've gone on to bigger things. Which is yeah, that's pretty cool. You know what? It's terrible. I did not investigate that before I did this. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that uh, when we actually when I actually settled down to watch this and I pressed play on it, I thought, oh, there's a second director that Mitch didn't mention when he <laughs> when he decided to do this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was yeah, that's on me. I'll admit that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, sorry to Robert Olson. Yeah, sorry for uh, sorry for <laughs> sorry for getting your name taken off. Sorry for Alan Smithying you on your own film. <laughs> uh, but I think that's just about all there is to say, buddy. And I am very curious to see um, who out of the listeners seek this out and get in touch. And I'm really interested to find out what people think of it because I do think it's underseen. I do think it's fun, and I do think that I'm pretty confident based on what we know about uh, some of the guys' tastes that I think that this 
will go over pretty well with some people, and I think other people probably will find it, parts of it maddening for the same reasons that you did. <laughs> sure. But there's only one way to let us know. Well, in fact, there's loads of ways you can get in touch. Um, on a variety of platforms, Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC, and you can, of course, also email Scenes at gmail.com. Yep, and as you know, you can go onto our website, strongviolentpod.com, where you can find a non-exhaustive list of all the listening platforms. You can also find a link to our tea public, which is still undergoing a sale. I can't stress that enough that you can still get t-shirts for a tenner on there. Uh, you can also find our live mm-hmm. dates as and when they're announced. And yeah, just about everything. You want to find a little bit out about me and Mitch, those little bits on there. And of course, we will be back on Monday with another mini-sode for your ears. We'll be doing all the usual stuff. I will have watched a Shockwaves 100 film by then. I promise we're in the end game of this thing. I'm determined to not <laughs> flop at this point, not fumble. Going to make it over the line. We'll also, of course, be talking about what else we've been watching besides body and uh, taking a look at your feedback if there is any so uh, get in touch uh, so that section can still exist and of course <laughs> we will be playing another round of Mitch's Pitches and letting you know everything that you need to know for episode 82. Yeah yeah and if you just uh, if you're feeling generous uh, please pop on to your podcast provider of choice and give us a follow give us a like if you're on iTunes please 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 leave us a review because it goes a long long way to kind of boosting our profile and kind of getting us new listeners. Sure does yeah yeah know that'd be great go on go on it's been a while since we've asked yeah yeah we don't want to bombard you with this stuff but uh if you can just kind of keep it in the back of your mind and maybe go oh oh i'll maybe leave these boys a review i've been meaning to do it for a couple of weeks but there's no better time than now you know what yeah get off your plate (laughs) (laughs) and move on exactly we are back monday join us then if you can in the meantime don't forget it's better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds goodbye bye You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.